ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so carrying on from where we left off al imam at tahawi now says وفي دعاء الأحياء وصدقاتهم منفعة للأموات That when the living make dua for the deceased and give charity on behalf of the deceased then it benefits those deceased Making dua for them meaning that you make dua to Allah Asking Allah to forgive them. Asking Allah to have mercy upon them. Asking Allah to enter them into paradise. Making that type of dua for the deceased, it benefits the deceased. And giving charity on their behalf also benefits them. Ibn Abil Izz al-Hanafi says, Ittafaqa ahlu sunnah anna al-amwat يَنْتَفِعُونَ مِنْ سَعِيَ الْأَحْيَاءِ بِأَمْرَيْنِ The scholars are agreed <coughs> that there are two things at least, and there are more, but two things at least, all of the scholars are agreed upon benefits the people who have died. Those two things are مَا تَسَبَّبَ إِلَيْهِ الْمَيِّتِ Something that this deceased person has caused whilst he was alive. And that's a bit like Sadaqa Jariya. That he contributed towards a mosque, he contributed some charity, something. Even after he dies, that money he contributed, people are using it and benefiting from it. From the mosque that he helped to build, Muslims are still coming and praying in it. So he'll carry on getting the reward even after he's died because he participated in building that masjid, for example. Secondly, the second thing that the scholars are agreed carries on benefiting that person is dua al-muslimina wa stilfarihim lahu wa sadaqa wal hajj ala niza'in fi ma yasilu min thawab al-hajj. The second thing is dua that is made for them. Dua that is made for them, charity that is given for them, hajj that is done on behalf of them, those types of actions that are done on behalf of the deceased, they benefit the deceased. So we know you can make hajj on behalf of somebody who's died if they hadn't done hajj, and you've done your hajj, you can do hajj on their behalf, you can give charity on behalf of somebody who's died, you make dua for them, and note, you make dua for them, you don't make dua to them. You don't ask them for anything. You make dua to Allah for them. Asking Allah to forgive them and have mercy upon them. So this is all of benefit to the person who has died. And that's why the scholars they mention, Sheikh bin Baz and others, if you want to benefit the deceased, make dua for them. Give in charity on their behalf. People always ask when it comes to, for example, Eid al-Adha, 
Can we include them in our intention for the slaughtering? The scholars have said, if you're going to do a slaughtering for your household, within that intention for yourself and your household, you can have the intention of somebody deceased, your father, mother, etc. But you can't do a slaughtering specifically with the intention of just them. You can't say this slaughtering is specifically with the intention of being on behalf of my deceased parents and that's it. You can't do that. What you can do is you're going to do the slaughtering for yourself, for your family. You're making the intention that it is yourself, your family. You've got that normal intention. And you want to make an intention also to include your parents in that. To include them in that or others who have deceased in that. That's okay. You can include them in your intention that you're doing for your household anyway. But you can't make your intention specific just for them. That is the difference. وَاخْتُلِفَ فِي الْعِبَادَاتِ الْبَدَنِيَّةِ Then there was a difference of opinion like we mentioned regarding some of the actions. For example, fasting. There's a difference of opinion as to whether you're allowed to fast on behalf of somebody who's died. There were two main opinions. One opinion is you're allowed to fast on behalf of somebody who died. Somebody who died and they had days left to make up from Ramadan, for example, you can make them up on behalf of that person. That is one opinion. The second opinion is no. You can't make up Ramadan days for anybody. Only the person himself can fast those days. But you can make up other types of days for that person. Imagine that person had made a vow that he was going to fast three days next month, and then he died. So you can fulfill that vow for him and fast three days on his behalf. But Ramadan days, on the second opinion, they say you can't do those. So there's a bit of a difference on those types of things. But dua, charity, hajj, umrah, all of those things are agreed upon by the scholars that they can be done on behalf of the deceased. There is of course the famous narration that the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا مَا تَبْنُ آدَمْ When the son of Adam dies, meaning when a person dies, إِنْقَطَعَ عَمَلُهُ إِلَّا مِنْ ثَلَاثِ His actions are cut off except from three things. صَدَقَةٍ جَارِيَةٍ Ongoing charity. أَوْ وَلَدٍ صَالِحٍ يَدْعُوا لَهِ a righteous child who makes dua for him, or ilmin yuntafa'u bih min ba'dihi, or knowledge that people benefit from after he dies, meaning that he leaves some knowledge, he taught some people, he wrote some books, he delivered some lectures, those CDs, those books, those materials are still available to people after he dies. So then they carry on benefiting from those materials, then that is something which benefits him as well. So the, this, uh, that is a famous narration indicating how the actions are cut off except from those affairs that continue to benefit a person after his death. But this is why the scholars, they mention the importance of dua in particular, making dua for those who have died, for those who have passed on, to make dua for them, to ask Allah to forgive them, to ask Allah to have mercy upon them, 
to enter them into paradise. Make dua for those who have died from your parents or others, whoever it may be. Make dua for them. There is that narration where a person in paradise gets moved up higher in paradise. And so he says to Allah, what did I do to deserve this raise? What did I do to deserve being moved up higher in paradise? And then Allah will say to him, because your child used to make dua for you. After you died, your child used to make dua for you. And that benefits you. You get some reward for that and you are raised up now in paradise higher because of the dua your child used to make for you after you died. So that is something important to remember regarding those who have died to make dua for them. Ask Allah to forgive them, have mercy upon them and to enter them into paradise. Then, وَاللَّهُ تَعَالَى يَسْتَجِيبُ الدَّعَوَاتِ وَيَقْضِ الْحَاجَاتِ here, Al-Imam Al-Tahawi emphasizes the point regarding making dua to Allah. That Allah answers the dua and fulfills the needs of the people. Allah answers the dua of those who call upon Him and fulfills their needs that they are calling upon Him for. As Allah said in the Qur'an, <coughs> وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ اُدْعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ And your Lord said, Call upon me and I will answer you. Call upon me and I will answer you. And similarly, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّاعِي إِذَا دَعَانِ That if my servants ask you about me, then indeed I am close. And I answer the dua of the one calling upon me. Ibn Abil Iz, he mentions here that the majority or Many, what many of the people of knowledge are upon from the various, from the various parts and where they may be from, they are all upon this statement that dua is one of the strongest means to bring goodness for yourself and to remove harm from yourself. Making dua to Allah is from the strongest of the means to ensure goodness comes to you and harm is repelled from you. وَقَدْ أَخْبَرَ تَعَالَى عَنِ الْكُفَّارِ أَنَّهُمْ إِذَا مَسَّهُمُ الظَّرْءِ فِي الْبَحَرِ دَعُوا اللَّهَ دَعُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ Allah even told us about the kuffar, that when the kuffar were on the oceans, on the sea, and they found themselves in trouble. They found that their boat or their ship was maybe going to sink. They found themselves in desperate situations out at sea. That they would make dua to Allah. Even though they were mushrikun with all of their idols and their other so-called gods. When they found themselves in that trouble out at sea, they would call upon Allah sincerely. Because they knew 
No one could save them besides Allah. Their deities and their so-called gods and everybody else, nobody was going to save them in that situation. Nobody was going to rescue them from sea except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah tells us in the Qur'an, in that situation the mushrikun used to make dua to Allah sincerely. وَأَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ إِذَا مَسَّهُ الظَّرِّ دَعَاهُ لِجَنْبِهِ أَوْ قَاعِدًا أَوْ قَائِمًا And Allah tells us that a person, <coughs> if he is afflicted with some harm, then he is to call upon Allah, upon your side, or whether you are sitting or you are standing, whatever your state is, then call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِجَابَةُ اللَّهِ لِدُعَاءِ الْعَبْدِ مُسْلِمًا كَانَ أَوْ كَافِرًا وَيَعْطَاؤُهُ سُؤْلَهُ مِنْ جِنْسِ رِزْقِهِ لَهُمْ وَنَصْرِهِ لَهُمْ And the fact that Allah answers the dua of whether it is a Muslim or a kafir. Not Allah. He is the one who answers the dua of the one who calls upon him. Whether it's a Muslim or maybe even a kafir. And that they are then given what they ask for. Then that is from the provisions and the sustenance that Allah provides them. وَهُوَ مِمَّا تُوجِبُهُ الرُّبُوبِيَّةِ لِلْعَبْدِ مُطْلَقًا And the fact that Allah answers the dua of the people, then that is something which necessitates the rububiyyah of Allah. That it necessitates your understanding and recognition that Allah is the sole provider, sustainer, creator, giver of life and death with all of the control of all of the affairs. And so you return back with your dua to Allah. In one narration it even mentions, مَنْ لَمْ يَسْأَلِ اللَّهِ يَغْضَبْ عَلَيْهِ A person who never makes dua to Allah, doesn't make dua to Allah, then Allah is angered upon him. A person who doesn't make dua, never makes dua, doesn't ask Allah, then Allah is angered upon that person. That person who never makes dua, then what is his thinking? Does that person think that he has everything in this world under his own control? Does he think that he is under control or has the control over everything he's doing in his life and he thinks he is under self-control? He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need the dua to make to Allah. He doesn't need the aid and assistance of Allah. It is strange that a person would not make dua to Allah. So the one who does not call upon Allah, then Allah is angered on that person. There is an Arab poet who once wrote in some poetry, الرَّبُّ يَغْضَبُ إِنْ تَرَكْتَ سُؤَالَهُ وَبُنِي آدَمَ حِينَ يُسْأَلُ يَغْضَبُ that Allah is angered when you do not ask of Him. Allah is angered when you do not ask of Him. Whereas we the humans get angered when people start keep asking us. We as the humans get angered when people keep asking us. Whereas Allah is angered if you do not ask Him.
Allah loves that you ask of Him. Wants you to make dua to Him. So the poet, in this poem that he wrote, he wrote this one line, that the Lord Allah is angered when you abandon asking Him. Whereas we the people get angry when people keep asking us. So with Allah, it is not a case of not asking. With Allah, you should make dua. And you should ask for your requirements and your needs. Ask Allah to keep you firm upon the religion. Ask Allah to keep you strong upon practicing the Qur'an and the Sunnah. To keep you away from trials and tribulations. Keep you away from fitna. You should regularly make dua for these affairs. Dua for yourselves. Dua for your parents. Dua for your children, for your families. How can you not make dua for these things? How can you not make dua for your parents, your children, your families, for your religion, for your afterlife? A person is definitely extremely negligent. Like he doesn't care and he doesn't think if he's not bothering with any dua. So, Allah has advised us or encouraged us to make dua. And when we make dua, there are many benefits in that. There are many points behind that. One of them is that it affirms in our heart that connection and recognition to Allah. That you're calling upon Him, raising your hands, calling upon Allah. It is a reminder to you regarding your Lord and your Creator. Reminder to you regarding Allah. That you are regularly in that connection, calling upon Allah, making dua to Allah. So there is that benefit of maintaining that connection with Allah and the remembrance of Allah when making the dua. Secondly, it also highlights your level of poverty before your Lord. That it shows you recognize you have no control and no power over anything you need to call upon Allah. You are nothing by yourself. You have no power, no nothing. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. There is no might, no power except by Allah. So by making dua, it shows your small level before your Lord. Your recognition that you are nothing and you have no power or control and you need to call upon Allah. Thirdly, highlights the correct aqeedah that Allah is the one who hears. Hears the dua of everybody making that dua. No matter how many people, thousands, millions across the face of the earth, making dua to Allah in all of their different languages, Allah hears them all, every single one of them. Fourthly, it indicates your recognition and your understanding that Allah is kind and generous. Because when you make dua, then that shows you understand Allah is kind and generous and you hope that Allah will answer your dua. You have that hope in the generosity of Allah and the mercy of Allah for your dua to be answered. So that is something good for a Muslim to have that recognition of. And that is why as well, the scholars they mention when you make dua, when you make dua, you're supposed to make it with conviction. Make dua with conviction. Believing that Allah will answer your dua. Don't make dua thinking, well, maybe, maybe it'll get answered. You don't make dua like that. 
When you make dua for something, don't make it with your mind, well, maybe, maybe, most likely not, but maybe get answered. You don't make dua in that way. That's actually a mistake and it's wrong. And it shows you don't understand tawheed properly if you do that. When you make dua, you're supposed to make it with conviction, believing that Allah will answer your dua. And that's why it mentions in a hadith, either, uh, uh, in the narration it mentions, we're making the dua, فَلْيَعْزِمِ الْأَمْرِ مَنْ دَعَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَعْزِمِ الْأَمْرِ That whoever makes dua to Allah, then let him make it with conviction. Whoever makes dua to Allah, then let him make it with conviction. Knowing that Allah hears you, knowing that Allah is the merciful, knowing that Allah will answer your dua, you make it with conviction when making that dua. That's why the scholars, they say, when you make dua, you don't say, inshaAllah. You don't say, oh Allah, have mercy upon me, or forgive me for my sin, inshaAllah. You don't say that. Because when you're asking for forgiveness, you want that forgiveness. So you do it with conviction. Oh Allah, forgive me for my sins. And you're sincere and genuine and 100% want forgiveness for those sins. So you ask with conviction, Oh Allah, forgive me for my sins. And you don't say, forgive me for my sins, inshallah, etc. Like you're not really sure. You don't make dua like you're not really sure. You don't make dua half-heartedly. When you make dua, it is with a full heart, with conviction. Knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can answer you, uh, and nobody can prevent Allah from answering you, and nothing uh, weakens Allah in answering you. That Allah is the mighty and powerful, and can answer the dua of everybody calling upon Him, and it would not affect Allah. In the hadith, لَوْ أَنَّ أَوَّلَكُمْ وَآخِرَكُمْ وَإِنْسَكُمْ وَجِنَّكُمْ قَامُوا عَلَى سَعِيدٍ وَاحِدٍ if all of you from the beginning to the end, every human and every jinn, all of you from beginning to end, were upon one plane of land, فَسَأَلَ كُلُّ وَاحِدٍ عَنْ مَسْأَلَتِهِ And then every single one of you made dua to Allah for your personal dua, and Allah answered every single one of you on your personal duas, gave you all of that what you want, then it would not, مَا نَقَصَ مِمَّا عِنْدِي شَيْءٍ it would not decrease the kingdom of Allah whatsoever. It would not decrease the kingdom of Allah in any way. If he was to answer the dua of everyone from the beginning to the end, all humans, all jinn, not just the seven billion who are alive now, everyone from the beginning, jinn and humans, gave them what they want. It would not decrease the kingdom of Allah. So a person makes that dua with conviction, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ always regularly used to make dua, asking Allah to keep him firm upon the religion, to keep him guided, strong, away from trials and tribulations. Well, when the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua always, Ya muqallib al-qulubi thabbit qalbi ala deenik. Oh Allah, the one who changes the hearts of the people, keep my heart firm upon your religion. Keep it strong and firm upon the upright way. Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he used to make the dua, وَجْنُبَنِي وَبَنِيَّ أَنْ نَعْبُدَ الْأَصْنَامِ He used to make the dua, Oh Allah, protect me and my family from ever falling into the worship of the idols. 
So this is something constant, constant remembrance of Allah, constant dhikr, constant dua. It's mentioned about the Prophet ﷺ, he used to seek istighfar, seek forgiveness from Allah over 70 times a day, 100 times a day. Asking Allah for forgiveness, making istighfar. So a person is to be constant and regular with that. Then Al-Imam Al-Tahawi says, وَيَمْلِكُ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ وَلَا يَمْلِكُهُ شَيْءٍ <coughs> That Allah controls everything and nothing controls Him. وَلَا غِنَى عَنِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَقَرْفَةَ And you could not survive separate from Allah, not even the time period that it takes in the blinking of an eye. How long does it take you to blink an eye? Not even that moment of time could you survive by yourself without the aid of Allah. You are nothing by yourself. لا غنى عن الله You cannot suffice without Allah. Not even the blink of an eye. Not even that much by yourself. وَمَنِ اسْتَغْنَى عَنِ فَقَدْ وَصَارَ مِنْ أَهْلِ And the one who does think he is sufficient by himself without needing Allah, then that is the person who has committed. Kufr, they are the ones by themselves and they have nothing. They have nothing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are upon their kufr. So those people who think they can survive without Allah, they can survive without uh, any aid or assistance from Allah, then they have committed kufr. And they will end up as the people of destruction, people of the hellfire. وَاللَّهُ يَغْضَبُ وَيَرْضَى لَا كَأَحَدٍ مِنَ Then Al-Imam Al-Tahawi mentions here, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yaghdab wa yarda. Allah is angered and Allah is pleased. Allah is angered at certain affairs and Allah is pleased at certain affairs. And that is mentioned in the Quran. For example, Allah tells us that He is pleased with the companions. Radiyallahu anhu. That Allah is pleased with them, pleased with the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, pleased with the companions of the Prophet sallallahu anhum. Similarly, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ That indeed Allah is pleased with the believers. So these ayat indicating that Allah is pleased. Allah is pleased with the believers, with the mu'minun, with the righteous, with the companions. And then also there is evidence in the Qur'an that Allah is angered at, other, at others. Angered at others. So for example, وَغَضِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ and that Allah is angered upon him. مَنْ لَعَنَهُ اللَّهُ وَغَضِبَ عَلَيْهِ Whomsoever Allah curses and is angered upon. 
وَبَاءُوا بِغَضَبٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ All of these ayat talking about the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And take note that any time you come across any ayat or any ahadith that are talking about or phrasing something as whoever does such and such, then the anger of Allah is upon them. Whoever does X, Y, and Z, then the anger of Allah is upon them. That means those actions are major sins. If the anger of Allah is upon you for doing something, means you've done major sins. So this is something we believe and we affirm, the pleasure of Allah and the anger of Allah. وَمَذْهَبُ السَّلَفِ وَسَائِرُ الْأَئِمَّةِ إِثْبَاتُ صِفَةِ الْغَضَبُ وَالْرِضَى So we affirm the attribute of anger and the attribute of pleasure. الَّتِي وَرَدَ بِهَا الْكِتَابُ وَالسُنَّةِ وَمَنَعَتْ نَعْمِ So these are names and attributes or attributes that are mentioned in the Qur'an. And so we affirm them. As for the people of innovation, just like we discussed at the beginning of the book, They'll either say, tafwil, that yes, we affirm that Allah is pleased with them and Allah is angered with others who do such and such. But we don't actually say that means Allah is pleased or angered. We leave the meaning to Allah. So in that case, what are you affirming? You say, okay, we affirm the ayah, radiyallahu anhum, Allah is pleased with them. But we can't affirm the attribute of Allah being pleased Okay, we affirm the ayah, Allah is pleased with them, but we don't affirm what that means. We leave that to Allah. So if you're leaving it to Allah, then in reality, what are you affirming? Nothing, Nothing really. What are you affirming then if you're saying, well, we're going to leave it to Allah, but we affirm it. What do you affirm then if you're leaving it to Allah? You don't know what you're affirming then, you're just affirming nothing. That's not the way of the Salaf. That's not what the Salaf mentioned, and that's not what the Prophet ﷺ taught. Allah says, Allah is pleased with them. We affirm that Allah is pleased with the companions. Allah has the attribute of being pleased and is pleased with the companions. Because Allah tells us that. We don't say, okay, Allah is pleased with the companions, but we don't know what that means. We're going to leave it to Allah. We, don't, we can't say Allah is pleased, like pleased with the companions. Then in that case, you're not affirming anything. Why is the Quran here telling you these things then? You're not going to affirm any of them. It's there in the Qur'an telling you Allah is pleased with the companions. So we say Allah is pleased with the companions. And there in the Qur'an it is telling you Allah is angered at the ones who do this or that. So we affirm the anger of Allah upon those who do this or that from the specifics that are mentioned. And we don't make interpretations either in saying that Allah being pleased, it means... It's like a simile or a metaphor just to say that Allah is going to reward them. <coughs> yes, Allah is going to reward them, but Allah is pleased with them too. They say, no, it doesn't mean that Allah is actually pleased. It just means Allah is going to reward them. That's another topic separate. Allah is going to reward them. So we don't get into any of those issues. We leave it as it is. Allah is pleased with them. So we say Allah is pleased with them. In a hadith which is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, hadith of Abu Sa'id Al-Khudri, 
it mentions inna allah ta'ala yaqulu li ahli al-jannah ya ahli al-jannah that allah will say to the people of paradise ya ahli al-jannah o people of paradise fayaqulun so they will say labbaik rabbana wasa'dayk wal khayru fi yadayk they will say labbaik meaning we are here in your uh, in your service we are here in your service labbaik rabbana wasa'dayk wal khayru fi yadayk meaning that we are here in your service ready to be obedient labbaik فَيَقُولْ هَلْ رَضِيتُمْ Then Allah says to them, Are you pleased? They're in paradise already now. And Allah says to them, Are you pleased? فَيَقُولُونَ And they say, وَمَا لَنَا لَا نَرْضَى يَا رَبَّ وَقَدْ أَعْطَيْتَنَا مَا لَمْ تُعْطِ أَحَدًا مِنْ خَلْقِكَ They said, And why would we not be pleased? You've given us what you've not given anybody else. Meaning they're in paradise and they got all those rewards and blessings. So they say, why would we not be pleased? You've given us all these things you've not given to anybody else in your creation. So then Allah says, Shall I not give you something even better than that? They say, oh our Lord, And what is possibly better than this? Then all of paradise and the blessings and everything. فيقول, and then Allah says, أُحِلُّ عَلَيْكُمْ رِضْوَانِي فَلَا أَسْخَطَ أَسْخَطَ عَلَيْكُمْ بَعْدَهُ أَبَدًا That I will place upon you my pleasure and I will never be angered upon you ever. That is from the tremendous and great blessing when Allah says to them, are you pleased? And they say, why would we not be pleased with all of this? Then Allah says, shall I not give you something even more? And they say, what could be more? And then Allah tells them that I am pleased with you. My pleasure is upon you and my anger will never be upon you. That is the tremendous and great blessing. So that is what is mentioned regarding... Uh, this section that was talking about the day of judgment, the decree, and about the deceased, and what occurs, and the dua that is made for them, that brings an end to that chapter there. The next section now, coming to the end of the book now, close to the final couple of sections or so, is a section that is specifically now about the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, it's been briefly mentioned in the book in earlier parts, but this section now does go into a bit of detail, talking about the companions of the Prophet sallallahu our position towards them, how we behave towards the companions, how we speak of them, their different levels. It goes into a bit more detail now in this final section. So it says, وَنُحِبُّ أَصْحَابَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ That we love the companions of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. 
We love the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَلَا نُفَرِّطْ فِي حُبِّ أَحَدٍ مِّنْهُمْ And we do not have any negligence in our love for any of them. وَلَا نَتَبَرَّ مِنْ أَحَدٍ مِّنْهُمْ And we do not declare our innocence of any of them. We love them. وَنُبْغِضُ مَنْ يُبْغِضُهُمْ And we hate the ones who hate them. Anybody who hates the companions, then we hate those people. وَبِغَيْرِ الْخَيْرِ يَذْكُرُهُمْ And people who speak about the companions in a bad way, then we hate them. وَلَا نَذْكُرُهُمْ إِلَّا بِخَيْرِ And we do not mention anything about the companions except goodness. We only speak of goodness regarding the companions. وَحُبُّهُمْ دِينَ وَإِيمَانَ وَإِحْسَانَ Loving them is a part of your religion. It is a religious duty to love the companions. It is a part of your religion to love them. And Iman and Ihsan. وَبُغْضُهُمْ كُفْرًا وَنِفَاقُ And hating them, it is kufr and transgression and hypocrisy. So in this section now he opens up by telling us our overall position towards the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. That we love the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And we speak about them only with goodness. We don't speak bad about any of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. We don't try and pick out mistakes of the companions. We don't try and pick out but the companions, they had this problem or they had this issue and this happened and that happened. We don't sit there picking out Negatives regarding the companions. That is not what Ahl Sunnah do. Allah has told you in the Quran, Allah is pleased with them. So who are you to sit there and start picking out mistakes? But the companions, one time they did this and one time they did that. We don't sit there doing that. We love the companions because Allah has told us He is pleased with them. We love them and we hold them in high regard. And we do not have any negligence regarding them. We love them and show them respect and honor. And we hate anybody who hates the companions. And anybody who speaks bad about the companions. And that of course, you have the obvious examples of the Shia, the Rafidah, and their likes, who speak evil of the companions, speak bad of the companions, the Khawarij, Others who declare even some of the companions to be kuffar. They even declare some of the companions to be kuffar. Saying that they apostated and they left Islam. Some of them say all of them apostated apart from 10 or 12. That is the belief of some of the extremely deviated people. So we hate those people. We hate that this aqidah of theirs completely false. In fact, kufr for them to be declaring Sahaba to be kuffar. So we hate that and we hate those people who are upon that. We love the companions and it is religion, a religious duty to love the companions. <coughs> there are many ayat in the Qur'an, many examples in the Qur'an and the sunnah showing us that we must love the companions and the virtues of the companions. So for example,
Allah mentions in the Quran, وَالسَّابِقُونَ الْأَوَّلُونَ مِنَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ Those early ones from the Muhajirun who left Mecca and came to Medina, the early Muslims. وَالْأَنصَارِ The ones who were already in Medina. وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانِ And then all of those who follow in their footsteps upon righteousness. رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ Allah is pleased with them. Those from the Muhajirun and the Ansar and all of those who follow in their footsteps in righteousness, then Allah is pleased with them. وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ And they are pleased with Allah. They are happy with Allah. They are happy with their Lord and they hope for the mercy of their Lord and they are obedient to Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with them. And then Allah tells us, وَأَعَدَّ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي تَحْتَهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for them paradise wherein rivers flow under the trees ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْعَظِيمُ That is the great success and the great victory. And there are many other ayat like this that talk about the great virtues of the companions. In a famous hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, لَا تَسُبُّوا أَصْحَابِي أَوْ أَحَدًا مِنْ أَصْحَابِي do not abuse or curse or speak bad of any one of my companions. فَلَوْ أَنَّ أَحَدٌ مِنْكُمْ أَوْ أَحَدُكْ أَحَدَكُمْ أَنْفَقَ مِثْلَ أُحَدٍ Because indeed if one of you <coughs> was to spend to the equivalent of Mount Uhud in gold for charity, مَا أَدْرَكَ مُدَّ أَحَدِهِمْ وَلَا نَصِيفَةً You would not be comparable to a handful they gave in charity or even half a handful they gave. You give to the size of Mount Uhud in charity and you'll not be at the same level of them giving just a handful in charity or half a handful in charity. Such is their level and their virtue and their status. So the Prophet said, لَا تَسُبُّوا أَصْحَابِي لَا تَصُبُّوا أَصْحَابِي Do not curse my companions. Do not abuse my companions. Do not speak bad of my companions. In another narration it mentions, أَصْحَابِي كَالنُّجُومِ My companions are like the stars. بِأَيِّهِمْ اِقْتَدَيْتُمْ اِهْتَدَيْتُمْ Whichever one of them you follow, you'll be guided. Meaning all of those companions, Allah is pleased with them. And this example is given that they are like the stars. Whichever one you follow, you'll be guided to that place. You'll be guided to the correct way. Meaning that you follow the way of the Salaf. You follow the way of the Salaf. And so this example is given in the narration. Even though some of the scholars have mentioned that this hadith as a wording 
is not authentic. But the meaning as a whole, following the way of the Salaf, following the way of the companions, that is obviously correct. There are several other narrations. This chapter actually has quite a lot of detail in it regarding the levels of the companions, regarding some brief biography of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali, the Khulafa, radiallahu anhum, uh, and about the ten who were given the glad tidings of paradise. So, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to round off on that point today. But we'll do the rest of this chapter regarding the companions, or maybe half of this chapter next week, and then probably finish the chapter the week after that, regarding the companions. And then after we finish the chapter on the companions, there's a chapter regarding the miracles of the awliya of Allah. And that's important too, because everybody these days claims to be from the awliya of Allah. They say such and such an imam is from the awliya of Allah. Go and throw your notes at him and he'll make the dua for you. All of these things. So we'll have a discussion on that. Who really are the awliya of Allah? And what miracles do they? does Allah allow them to do sometimes? So we'll be able to distinguish that as well, inshallah ta'ala. Any questions on that then so far? Being transported and buried back home, it's not technically, uh, it's not a sunnah to do that. The sunnah is that when a person dies, you should quickly take care of everything and get them buried. Not that you spend another two days organizing flights and this and that and take them there. There could be another three or four days Five days, who knows how long all of it takes before they finally get buried over there. That is not good. Delaying the burial is not good. So ideally, it's not something ideal to be doing. It's not something ideal to be doing, to be sending back the bodies, spending another three, four days, who knows how long, all that process until you finally get them buried over there. That isn't something good. So here you have Muslim graveyards, there are sections where there are Muslim graveyards. It's sufficient to bury a person. If that is done, it's, it's done. If they do that and they send the bodies across, it's done, it's done. But if that's not something which is a necessity, it's not necessary, then you should just bury here in the Muslim graveyards in the Muslim areas. If you've done that and they've done that to you, then you have little choice. You just do it then get it sent as quickly as possible and it's buried. But it's not something you should do and you should advise them this is not correct to delay the burial and to take flights and to go to other places. That isn't correct. So you should advise the people it's not correct. Anything else? About what you do for, what you can do for the deceased. Um, mm. It's... Uh, Sacrificing specifically for the deceased uh, 
as a general act of charity may be possible, but not the udhiyah of Eid. Not the specific one. Not the udhiyah, the slaughtering of Eid, for example, that we've just said. You can't do that specifically for the deceased. You do that for yourself and your family and you can include them in your intention. But you can't do that specifically for them. General sacrifice, which is just general charity, then you're going to go get a lamb or something and slaughter it. uh, And you're going to use your money to do that. That's a general charity. Maybe that generally can be done as a general charity. But specific udhiyah, then you can't. Mm. You know, like um, a lot of the toilet areas nowadays have got these slippers that, have, um, that on a lot of occasions are quite wet. So obviously we wipe over our um, socks. Mm. So is it permissible to wear those considering they're wet and going into the toilet and coming out and wiping over them? That would be problematic. If you're going into these areas now, mosques and whatever specified slippers, they don't come out of that area. So they've got wet now. And if they got wet in that area, how have they got wet in that area? It's a person has gone into that area, he's cleansing himself after using the toilet, that water in that area. It would be highly suspicious. So it would not be a suitable thing that you put your socks on there and then you get the water wet from there in that area and then you wipe over them. In that case, it's better to take your socks off and wash your feet when you come out afterwards. And then you've got no doubt in your mind either because that is now... A likelihood that's a possibility a very good possibility of impurity that water in that area those slippers are staying there is a likelihood and there's a possibility of something so it's not really suitable getting your socks wet in that area and then praying in them there are some fatwas of the scholars about this. Some scholars have said you can still take your shoes off. But others have said if you've wiped over the shoe area, then keep the shoe on and pray in that shoe area. That's the one that you wiped on. So maybe al-ahwat as they say, to keep yourself out of any issue. If you're going to do that, just pray with them on. If you're not going to, just take the shoes off and open your socks then. You mentioned that the Hajj number you can do for the disease. Can you do Tawaf? Tawaf, Allah alam. Hajj and Umrah, definitely. Tawaf, with the intention of somebody who's passed away, Allah alam. Not sure about the Tawaf. But the whole Umrah and the Hajj can be done for them. And you can make dua for them. You can do, you know, dua is a big act of worship to be doing for the, on behalf of the deceased. You can do the dua like getting together collectively, having this day and whatever, the 40, all these things, that's bid'ah. You make dua yourself. Yourself, you make dua for the deceased in your prayer, after your prayer, for the deceased, your parents, whoever it might be, you make dua for them. But getting together and having food and doing these events and making dua, that's bid'ah. What's the, what's the ruling on breakdown covers? Because I'm Breakdown cover, as far as I know, is not permissible because it is insurance. You buy breakdown cover, you pay them £50 for the year and they tell you if you break down during this year, we'll come and pick you up and within three months take you to a garage or whatever else, all these things. (coughs) What if you don't break down that year? 
MashaAllah, your car, it stays legitimate. You've been servicing it well. You'll be using some shell fuel in it now and again. And it carries on perfectly good. doesn't break down for the whole year. Did they give you your 50 pounds back? So what have you purchased with your 50 pounds? What goods have you purchased with your 50 pounds? Nothing. And Islamically, that's therefore an impermissible trade. Islamically, when you purchase something, you purchase something. You give money and you purchase something. A quantifiable good. This is not a quantifiable type of goods. You're purchasing, as they say, a peace of mind. And that is not a purchase you make. That is not an entity you buy. A peace of mind. Rather, your peace of mind is your tawheed and your trust in Allah. You don't need to put your trust in these breakdown services and they give you the peace of mind. You have your peace of mind with your trust in Allah, your tawakkul in Allah. So these breakdown things, you don't have to worry about them. And, uh, you know, when you think about it anyway, anybody who's smart enough to work out the maths, they are smart people. That's how they make money from all these innocent people who don't understand. Mathematically, insurance, does it work out? It only works out for the people giving the insurance. Mathematically, when you work out the finances, the numbers, the figures, and the probabilities, it only works out for the ones giving out the insurance, not for the ones buying the insurance. If it was more in our favor, the ones buying the insurance, then the ones giving the insurance wouldn't be able to give it. Or the only way they'd be able to give it is by asking for £10,000 for one year breakdown cover. It wouldn't work. They know mathematically, a hundred people are going to buy their cover. Probabilities are maths. That's how it works and how they make their money. They know a hundred people are going to buy their cover for, for £10 each. So they've made... Thousand pounds or ten thousand pounds? So they've made ten thousand pounds. A hundred people and they've all paid a hundred pounds each, let's say, for their cover. So they've made ten thousand. Out of that hundred people that year, probabilities, mathematics, historical research, everything, new people, but they look at the cars, what you've got, everything else. Out of that hundred people, ten of them have a breakdown that year. Each one of them, their breakdown costs a hundred pounds for these guys to go out and sort out. So they've lost a thousand. Ten people, a hundred pounds each time, they've lost a thousand. They've made for the year the other nine thousand. So they can give insurance and they carry on giving insurance. Mathematically, it can work for them. If it couldn't work, then how would insurance even exist? Mathematically, it doesn't work for a person to buy insurance. You now get breakdown cover for 40 years of your life. You've been driving from the age of 20 to the age of 60. Every year you've been buying breakdown cover. 10 pounds a year, for example. 40 years. So, 4,000. 4,000 pounds? 400 pounds? 400 pounds. So you've been paying 400 pounds. 40 years, 10 pounds a year. 400 pounds you've paid over the 40 years of your life. In those 40 years, you only broke down twice. The first time you broke down, it was some issue that occurred. You could have got yourself towed back if you never had any cover. What's the alternative? You've got to ring up a towing company and take you home. 70, 80 pounds with the charge. Happened to you another time as well later on. Another 70, 80 pounds. In your 40 years, you broke down twice and it cost you 160 pounds. 
So if you didn't take any cover out, you paid 160 pounds on those couple of occasions. If you took your cover out, you paid 400 pounds for those same two occasions. You're going to be buying this cover for all your lives, for insurance, for this, for that, for house, for phone, for everything. And how many things are actually going to happen? At the end of that 40 years of your life, you add up all the insurance money you've given to all these people. Then you add up the claims that have actually occurred. More than likely, for 90% of people, they will have paid more than what they've claimed. That's how insurance companies can carry on working. So it doesn't make any sense mathematically, let alone anything else. A person puts his trust in Allah. All these years now, imagine everybody compulsory, the car insurance. All these years, everybody's been getting car insurance. How many accidents has everybody had? Maybe some people have had one or two here and there. But the reality is, if you add up all the insurance money you've been paying ever since you passed, compared to how many accidents and what that's cost you, at the end, there's going to be no doubt you're paying far more than what actually occurs to you. So insurance doesn't make any sense anyway mathematically, and Islamically it's impermissible because you're not buying anything tangible. You can't buy a peace of mind Islamically. That's nonsense. Well, everybody puts money in together. Somebody dies, you give them the money. That's okay, that's okay. That's just, it's, sa- it's a savings account. Everybody's doing a savings account. No, basically what they do is, when someone dies, that's when they collect. They work out how much it is, how many minutes they are. Then no problem. So everybody wants to chip in, they collect, and then everybody's going to get their money back afterwards. That's, that's not an issue. Very good question. It's a bit of a different topic. So, mm. a lot of the mosques in the area, after they pray salat, um, do dhikr collectively and um, do dua together as well. Um, is it impermissible for us to join in even when they do dua collectively? <coughs> Collective dua after the prayer, it's not in the sunnah to do it. There is no authentic narrations that the Prophet used to turn around after the prayer and do dua, and all the Sahaba used to do it together. If that was something which used to happen, there'd be hadith everywhere about it. Bukhari, Muslim, everywhere. How can that be missed? How would the companions have missed something that important? That after the prayer, the Prophet used to turn around and do dua. Not a single narration in Bukhari, Muslim, these places, anywhere. Do you think all of the companions missed such an important detail that after the prayer, we used to get together and make dua with the Prophet? How could they miss that? They wouldn't have missed it. It didn't happen. The Prophet never used to do collective dua. It's a bid'ah to do that. So you can't participate in that. You can't participate in the collective dua that they're doing after the prayer like that. It's not a sunnah, it's a bid'ah. Hmm. You know, it's a type of gambling, isn't it? You're gambling. It is a type of gambling. You're giving that money in the possibility that you might break down and then I won't have to pay for the tow truck, I'll be covered. It is a gamble. But like we said, the trade itself is impermissible because you are paying for no tangible returning goods. A peace of mind isn't a tangible returning goods. Islamically, when you buy and sell, trade, there's a money amount and there's a quantity you're purchasing amount. Even the quantity has to be known. It has to be known. I can't say to you, I've got a, 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 a bag full of these microphones. I've got a bag full of microphones. I'll sell you the bag for 50 pounds. How much are you going to pay me? 50 pounds, I'll give you the bag for. He says, how many are in there? How many of these devices are in there? I say, I don't know. There's just a few in there. Just give me 50 pounds, I'll give you it. Technically, Islamically, you can't do that. You have to know what you're purchasing, the quantities, the descriptions, the amounts. That's why some scholars even say, and this is like ijtihad, it's not necessarily agreed upon, but an ijtihad of some scholars, they say buffets are technically not correct. 
because you're paying your 10 pounds for an amount of food which is not qualified. When you go to a normal takeaway, okay, 12-inch pizza, 5 pounds. You're paying your 5 pounds for, a quali- for an amount of food that is quantifiable, a 12-inch size pizza. You go to a buffet, you pay your 10 pounds, there's nothing quantified by anything. You could eat, you could one day sit there, eat 5 pizzas, 12-inch. One day you go in there, you barely finish half. So you've paid that money and you don't know the quantity of the goods you're going to take with that money. So technically that goes against the laws of buying and selling Islamically. Some scholars therefore said it's probably better to avoid buffets. But that's... that's uh, and, um, so for example, a lot of people um, recently as well have been investing in the stock market. In what? In, in the stock market and also in um, currencies as well. Those kinds of things can be permissible, but you need to look into the details of how it's being done, which companies are being invested in. You have to look into details. As long as the details are clean, then it is okay. But you have to look into the details, where the investments are going, which companies, how it's working, interest has to be out of it, all those things. If all of that is properly checked out, verified, it's clean, then it's okay. Everything. All of these, it's all insurance. All insurance. The what? Yeah, yeah, houses, everything. Well, some of them you have to buy law. Have if you have to have it by law, then you can't do anything. Like certain public, like this building probably has to have public liability insurance by law, in case one of you trips up on the chair and falls down. Now, then by law you have to have that. The owner of the building has to have it. Then you got no choice. Where you have a choice, though then you shouldn't be purchasing insurances. You shouldn't be getting additional insurances on anything. So in regards to that breakdown thing, um, certain people, what they'll do is they'll know that the car has an issue, so they'll purchase the breakdown. No, but still, the car has an issue. You still don't know if it's definitely going to break down or not. Your car has an issue, but mashallah, it keeps traveling along for the whole year and doesn't break down. Then what? No, but they, what they do is they know it's got an issue, and then they'll take the cover out, and after like a month or so, they'll ring it. All right, an existing issue. An existing issue. Yeah, well, that's that deception is. again, isn't it? That deception is a different thing now. <laughs> deception, if you do that, you know there's a problem right now in your car already. And you know this particular cover covers that problem. So you take the, the cover out because it's going to cost you 50 quid and that's a 200 pound problem. So then you think, okay, let me do that. That's deception. Deception is not really uh, something good to be doing like that. That's not something correct or permissible to do. <coughs> Uh, yeah, it's mentioned. Pray two rakaat. When you finish, then do your dua istikhara. That's mentioned in the narrations. Pray two rakaat after you finish, then do your dua. Hmm. All right, we'll leave it. Ah. What if it doesn't burn down? So what if it doesn't burn down? So you pay your 200 pounds for the year, what if it doesn't burn down? Do you get your 200 pounds back? But it's a small haram amount to lose. Your trust, you put your trust in Allah. This shows a person has a weakness in their trust in Allah. A weakness in their trust in Allah. You do the, the good deeds, you do your obedience, you put your trust in Allah, you make dua that Allah keeps your house safe. Is that better or is the insurance better? 
But you make dua to Allah, Allah protects you and keeps your house safe. Isn't that better than going and purchasing insurance? Trust in Allah rather than trust in the building insurance company. And if something does happen, then a believer understands these are trials and tests from Allah. A believer understands that. So these insurances are for the weak people. We'll have to leave it there then. We'll carry on next week, inshallah. Quarter past seven again, inshallah ta'ala.